the first recorded use of the word loophole came in the 16th century and it referred to holes in castle walls that archers could shoot their arrows through and reach their target. When you hear about loopholes today, it's nothing to do with warfare. It's used when there's something vague or absent in a rule that allows someone to do something and avoid punishment. A silly example would be if someone was to buy a pet tiger for their flat because the landlord said that there are no dogs allowed. Loopholes happen when people misunderstand why a law is there in the first place. Or sometimes they know exactly why the law is there, but they take advantage of poor wording or vague language that is used. And as Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, the Christians there think that they have found a loophole in the Christian faith. But they've got two and two together and they've got 500. They've observed that they are indeed sinful and that God is gracious. And so, why wouldn't they just keep on sinning while God keeps on forgiving? And in chapter 6, Paul answers this question once and for all. He says this in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Go down to verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Someone who has had his sight restored from blindness doesn't long to be blind again. The Christian who has been raised to life from death doesn't want to go back to death. Do you realize that if you uh, haven't put your trust in Jesus, you are dead? Now there's not many people who think that they're perfect, but most people think that they're good enough. They're better than that awful criminal on the news, or their uh, naughty brother or sister, or their dishonest colleague, or their immoral neighbor. But when we look at God's law, it shows us the depth of our sin. I remember a science lesson when I was in primary school, where we chewed on these uh, weird tablet things that turned our mouths uh, red and blue. Uh, what it was doing was showing our plaque. Now, plaque is invisible, and it comes from eating certain foods. And unless we brush our teeth and causes decay, um, brush, our brush our teeth, it will cause decay. Now, the colourful plaque revealers 
didn't clean our teeth. But it did show us exactly how much plaque that we had and how it had gotten into places that we weren't even aware of. And this is what God's law does. It proves humanity's sinfulness. God gave us his law. He did not give it in order to save us. He gave it to show us how sinful we are. And the chapter before this, Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, if you flick back, says this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It says the law made us sin more. When God presents his law to sinful man, our sinful natures rise up in protest and revolt against it. This is a simple illustration to show how this works. Uh, There was a uh, popular beachfront hotel that was having uh, trouble with just a couple of people who decided it was a good opportunity to uh, get one of the rooms with a balcony hanging over by the beach And what they would do is that they would fish over the side of the balcony. And people were doing this from about three or four floors up. And they were missing the water. And then they were causing damage to the windows below. Because because of the weight on the the end of the fishing rod. Uh, So the owners decided that the best way to stop this was to put a sign on every water-facing balcony telling people that fishing was not allowed. Did it fix the problem? No. Instead, more people wanted to fish. It gave people an idea. Oh, I never thought of fishing off the side of the balcony. Let's do that. It shows us what we're like as sinful men and women. And sin is not a a word that the world uses. The world sees some things as bad, yes. Murder, that's bad. Assault, that's bad. Prejudice, abuse, rape, paedophilia, those are all bad, yes. But when the Bible talks about sin, it's it's all those things, yes. But it also talks about things that that we're okay with. With lying and wanting what our neighbour has. And disobeying our parents. And being uh, unfaithful. We see here that sin has not only temporary consequences but eternal consequences sin leads to death so we need to be set free and we need to be saved and the law doesn't do that and the law can't do that the law can show us our sin but only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can transform us and what Paul goes on to do here in the second half of chapter 6 is uh, use a picture of slavery. And it's not a perfect image, and he knows that. Look at verse 19. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But Paul wants us to know that you are always a slave to someone. You are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And there is never an in-between period where you're in neutral territory so what are you a slave to tonight are you a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus let's look at those two things in turn first of all are you a slave to sin 
Uh, whether you have Christian parents, whether you went to church as a baby, whether you've read the Bible cover to cover, whether you consider yourself a good person, none of these things change the fact that you were born as a slave to sin. You don't have to teach a child to rebel. You have to teach a child to tie their shoelaces. You have to teach a child to do their times tables. You have to teach a child to read. You have to show practice and patience and dedication to ensure that your children can do these things. But you don't have to teach a child to think that the toy that their friend is playing with is better than their own. You don't have to teach a child to snatch the toy from their friend. You don't have to teach the other child to hit your child back when they have stolen the toy. You don't have to teach either of the children to shout at each other and shout at your face when you tell them to say sorry. You don't have to teach a child any of these things because a child is born thinking that they are at the centre of the universe. And we don't really grow out of that, do we? The way we sin and the sins we struggle with may change as we grow from childhood to adulthood, but the motive remains the same. We long to please ourselves. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. What that means is that you were free from the control of righteousness. You couldn't do anything good. And neither did you want to do anything good. But here's the thing. When we were slaves to sin, the things that we longed to do never brought about the joy or the satisfaction that was promised. Look at verse 21 with me. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things with which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Our sinful actions which stem from our sinful hearts are disguised as good decisions. This is the right thing for me to do. This is going to make me happy. This is going to bring me joy. When in fact they bring nothing but death and destruction. Not only to the people that we have sinned against, but to ourselves and to God. They take us further from God. They create sorrow and anger in others. They bring us shame and guilt. They are an offense to a perfect God who longs to see you live for him. And notice in that verse, Paul refers to these things as the things of which we are now ashamed. If we're believers, we ought to look back at the things that we used to do with disgust, with disappointment, that we used to be so easily pleased. That's what it means to be a slave to sin, to be ruled over, to have uh, no say in, in these things, to think that we do, but not really. So that is what most of us were in this room, I'm sure. All of us have started up off at that point. Uh, all of us have been born slaves to sin. If we're believers, our reality has been changed, however. So what is our current reality if we are believers? What can you be 
if you are set free from sin tonight. Well, second of all, you could be a slave to righteousness, a slave to righteousness, a slave of Jesus. Look at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul wants us to grasp that if we are no longer slaves to sin, we are, we are set free from sin, but we're not our own bosses all of a sudden, our own masters. No, we're now slaves of God, longing to do everything that our master wants. You see, we, true, we find true freedom when we are slaves to God. How could any sort of slavery be good? That, the term slavery uh, comes with such baggage, doesn't it? Such uh, negative thoughts today, and, and uh, we can understand that. How can the Bible talk about slavery being in any shape or form being a, a good thing? Well, it's because the God of the Bible is infinitely good and infinitely gracious and only wants the best for those that follow him. He transforms hearts, a, a process we cannot see with our eyes. So how do we know that we are no longer slaves to sin? How can we know that we're slaves to righteousness? Well, in John's Gospel we read this. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, if you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, the inside change is reflected on the outside. We are shown to be slaves to righteousness by doing righteous things. We show that we are Jesus' followers by doing the things that Jesus wants us to do. And what Paul writes here in Romans 6 shows that justification is deeply connected to what theologians call sanctification. Justification is, is the fact that we are seen as righteous in God's eyes. And sanctification is the fact that those who have been justified by God will look more and more like Jesus every day. And that is why the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is so deceitful. It teaches that we're only accepted by God if we have faith and good deeds. It teaches that we're not recipients of what Christ has done, but more like partners. He brings his life, death and resurrection to the equation, and we bring our good deeds. And together, those things earn our status as believers. That's not what the Bible teaches. In reality, the Bible teaches that faith and faith alone leads to justification and good deeds. Putting our trust in Jesus not only results in a status change, where we now have God's favor and are adopted into God's family, but it also brings about a change in how we act. Not because our performance has an effect on our standing with God, but because we've had our cold, selfish hearts of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, which longs to please God. 
And justification happens the moment we become Christians. But sanctification, progressive sanctification, happens throughout the life of a Christian. The moment we put our trust in Jesus, we are justified. And we're declared righteous. The Father sees us as he sees his Son. Perfect, spotless, without sin. But on the ground, day to day, there is still sin that remains. And so the Spirit gradually removes sin's pollution and power and gradually transforms our character. So those two things are true at the same time. We're saved in a single, instantaneous, completed act, once and for all, never repeated. But the Christian life is also a continual, gradual, lifelong process of maturing. And so the question which Paul anticipated and may have heard rumblings of from the church in Rome is that there in verse 15. Should we sin more because of grace? Should we sin more? And Paul says, don't be an idiot. Don't be foolish. Definitely not. He wants to shake them. Someone who's been transformed by the grace of God doesn't look to exploit God's mercy. And it's like being married and because this person is now my wife, I will do exactly as I please. I'll be irritable, I'll be rude, I'll make jokes at her expense, I'll play loud music when she's trying to sleep, I'll talk about her behind her back, all the while while saying she's my wife, she'll forgive me, because that's what marriage is all about. We don't do that because we don't love to see what we can get away with. We do the things that please our wives and please our husbands and please our mothers and fathers. And, and what that picture doesn't explain is the fact that a Christian not only wants to please God because uh, they, are, um, they have this connection, they have a, a blood-bound connection, but it's, the Holy Spirit is at work. God himself is working in our hearts, transforming us and helping us to change. And God's grace is utterly transforming. It changes how we see, how we experience, how we taste and do things. The Spirit changes our wants and our needs and our desires. When Paul says, you have been freed from sin, he doesn't mean you've been freed from all practice of sin because uh, what I don't want to happen this evening is for you to feel as if you are not a Christian because you still sin. We still sin daily, hourly. What Paul means is that we have been freed from the dominion, the reign, the mastery of sin. We've been set free from the rule of sin in our lives. Yes, we sometimes fall into sin, but we've now had our eyes opened to how empty and how fruitless sin is. Giving in to sin is, uh, is like being starving, it's like not eating all day and you're, you're desperate for a, a good meal and you know that there's a, a wonderful tasty hot meal waiting for you at home. And then you decide to tuck into a, a packet of Tang Fastics on the way home. 
thinking that it will bring about the nourishment that you crave. It is empty and unhealthy and unsatisfying. This doesn't mean that living a holy life is easy. Living a life pleasing to God is hard and takes sacrifice. It's only through the work of the Spirit that we are able to love as we ought. But we love because Christ first loved us. We are only able to live as Christians because of what Christ has already done. So when we feel totally hopeless, although we are called to obedience, let us remember that we aren't saved by our obedience. When we feel totally hopeless, although we are called to obedience, let us remember that we aren't saved by our obedience. We are saved by Christ's obedience. Many have been put off by Christianity and felt rejected by those who are Christians because they, they have heard that God only wants perfect people who have got it all sorted. He would never accept someone like me. And God's standards are perfect. Don't get me wrong. But knowing that we could not attain perfection, we need to put our trust in the only perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. From that moment on, we will not only be considered righteous, but we will begin to become more righteous. You may not see the change straight away, but others will. Others surely will. So as I close, consider what your life works result in. Everything you do in your life, what does it result in? There have been lots of strikes, haven't there, this year? Uh, postal workers, rail workers, nurses, teachers. Uh, why have they been on strike? Well, they're unhappy that the amount and the quality of work they do versus the amount that they're paid to do it. And it's only fair, isn't it, to want fair payment, to earn something worthwhile for your labours. Well, for the sinner, sin is their employer, their slave master. And everything that the sinner does contributes to their wages. And verse 23 tells us exactly what that wage packet is. For the wages of sin is death. Sin will end in nothing better than death. That's not closing your eyes, ceasing to exist in a peaceful nothingness, but eternal death, hell itself. And I don't talk about hell because I relish it. When a doctor tells his patient that they have a rare form of cancer, it's not because it brings him joy. It's not because he wants to make them sad. No, it's because he's seen the evidence in their life that this is true. And he wants the patient to make preparations. So when we talk about hell in church, we don't talk about it because we enjoy causing fear and sadness. No, it's because it's true. God doesn't find pleasure in these things. He says in Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? So you see that the consequences of sin is eternal death. But there is 
good news because we have the, the wonderful second half of verse 23. The free gift of God is eternal life. Something you don't have to pay for or work towards. That's what a gift is, isn't it? Uh, you don't foot the bill for your own Christmas present. Uh, when you open your presents on your birthday, you don't suddenly get to work and think, right, how am I going to pay you back for this? That's not how presents work, is it? Uh, that's a, a wonderful thing about presents, that someone else has paid for it. And that's the thing with eternal life. You haven't paid for it, but someone else has. And that person is Jesus Christ. And he paid for that gift with his life. And what is that wonderful gift? Eternal life. That means not just a, a long life, it's a, the longest possible life, but it's about the quality of it. It'll be wonderful because of who we spend it with. We will be with Jesus and we'll, we'll be like him. We will be free from sin. The process that has begun in each of us as believers, where we look more and more like Jesus, will be complete. We will be glorified. We will be with the one who has loved us from the beginning of the world. The one who created the world. The one who was willing to die for us. And we will be with him and we'll be singing his praises. And we'll be enjoying exploring the new heavens and the new earth forever. You know, if you've been on, a, on an amazing holiday, eventually you get bored, don't you? Even the best things in this world eventually get boring. But when we're with Jesus in perfection, we won't ever want it to end. I can't get into that frame of mind, can we? We can't possibly understand how that will be possible. But it's true. When we were with Jesus, all the sad things of this world will no longer exist and we will be with the Lord, the King of Kings, Jesus himself, and we will worship him together.